Well, thank you, Sam and Laura, for leading us in that. Wasn't that some great footage right at the beginning um, on that cliff top and then singing in your garden? I'd love to know what your neighbours thought when they heard that. That's awesome. Um, we are continuing today in our series on John. Can I encourage you right now, if you haven't already, grab a Bible, grab your phone and uh, turn to chapter five of John. And we're going to look at the last part of chapter five today. And just as a bit of a refresher, we've started in chapter five a couple of weeks ago where we saw Jesus heal this paralyzed man, a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. And he did it on the Sabbath day, the day of rest. So that brought some attention to him from the Jewish leaders. And then because of that attention, Jesus declared some things about himself and that riled them up even more. And so the passage last week that Mel unpacked for us really well, thanks Mel for that, um, was this passage around Jesus declaring who he was and that um, not only is he doing the Father's work, but there'll be a, a sense of he will bring judgment too for the people who are responding to him. And so today we finish that um, as we start at verse 31 of chapter 5. And just as we look at all that, uh, I was reading uh, over the last couple of weeks, one of the leading New Testament scholars in the world, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. Um, he basically makes this uh, uh, um, call about this scene that we're reading today. And he says, it's a bit like Jesus is on trial and he's got to defend himself and give testimony. But really it's flipped on its head and it's nearly like Jesus is putting the people on trial, that the people who are hearing about him and, and are being exposed to the truth of who he is and what he's doing, they are actually on trial. What do they do with this? Do they respond or do they not respond? So let's keep that in mind as we read through it today. So I'm going to read the passage um, in its total. Please read along with me, starting in verse 31 of chapter 5. Here we go. If I were to testify on my own behalf, this is Jesus speaking, my testimony would not be valid, but someone else is also testifying about me, and I assure you that everything he says about me is true. In fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist, and his testimony about me was true. Of course, I have no need of human witnesses, but I say these things so you might be saved. John was like a burning and shining lamp and you were excited for a while about his message. But I have a greater witness than John, my teachings and my miracles. The father gave me these works to accomplish and they prove that he sent me. And the father who sent me has testified about me himself. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face. And you do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe me the one he sent to you. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Your approval means nothing to me because I know you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you in my father's name and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe. For you gladly honour each other, but you don't care about the honour that comes from the one who alone is God. Yet it isn't I who will accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, in whom you put your hopes. If you really believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, 
How will you believe what I say? So there's our passage, finishing up John chapter 5. And he starts off with this, with this statement, you know, if I was to testify on my own behalf, it would not be valid. And so back in ancient times in this Jewish culture, testimony had to be from two or three witnesses. And that's not unlike it is today. I remember a few years ago being uh, selected for a jury and I was in a, uh, a trial that lasted about a week in Gosford and and it was interesting to see the people come up and give testimony. So the defendants gave testimony that they did not do this crime that they were accused of. But their testimony just on their own isn't enough. It's not valid. You need other people to corroborate or support that testimony. It just so happened in the case I was at, the, the guys were guilty of the crime they committed and their testimony wasn't real good. Um, but it's, it's, it's this, this thing that we need others to stand up and put their name, put their reputation on the line and say, yes, I support what this person's saying. I will support their testimony and I will give the same test, making a point about how things work in society. And then he makes the statement that someone else is testifying about me and everything they say is true. And that's someone else. He's pointing to God the Father here. Now, Jesus talks about three ways in which God the Father brings testimony about who Jesus is and what he's doing. And these three ways are through John the Baptist, through the signs. Remember, we've been talking about signs, the signs or the miracles that he's doing. Um, and, and also uh, um, the scriptures that point to that as well. So three key things that God's bringing uh, into the picture. And so then he talks about John the Baptist in verse 33, we see you know, Jesus say, you went and checked out John the Baptist and his testimony was true. And um, John was burning like this uh, lamp, this shining lamp, Jesus says. And you were all excited about it. Now, let's put this in context. What we call the Old Testament, the time where the nation of Israel was you know, doing what it was doing and God was with them and there was times when there was prosperity and times when there was pain and exile and, and um, things not going well. A lot of that time that we read, there were prophets, prophets who were coming to, to tell the people what God's will was, God's words, um, that sort of thing. And, and what we have between the end of the Old Testament and when we see Jesus come on the scene, there's about 400 years of real-time history and the prophets were silent in this time. So when John the Baptist appears on the scene, it's like for the first time in literally centuries, a prophet has appeared. So the people were excited about that. The people were really keen to be in John's space and hear what he was saying. And so, so Jesus is even saying to these, these Jewish leaders right now, you, you were keen to be listening to John, but here's the problem. Um, they weren't listening to John. They weren't actually listening to what he was saying and looking where John was pointing. And so uh, John came to give evidence about the light. And Jesus is saying, I, I am the light. In fact, in chapter eight of John, he declares that overtly, I am the light of the world. Um, but let's just have a look quickly back in um, chapter one of what, what John was saying. So there's a couple of verses on your screen here. So God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. And this was John's testimony. 
When he was asked, who are you? He came right out and said, I'm not the Messiah. And then John testified about Jesus. He said, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting on him. And I saw this happen to Jesus. So I testify that he is the chosen one of God. So John the Baptist was pretty clear. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Jesus is the one that the scriptures have been pointing to. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus is saying to these people, that's what John was pointing to. That's what John was saying. John is testifying about me, but you're missing it. Yeah, a lamp shines onto something so you can see it for what it is. I was thinking about this just the other night as I was sitting typing up some of these notes and I had a light behind me shining on the work that I was doing and that light enabled me to see what I needed to see so I could do what I needed to do. And so Jesus uses that example that John the Baptist was like this lamp shining on something, pointing to him, but the people that Jesus is addressing here seem to have this refusal to to look where John the Baptist was actually pointing. Now, we see quite clearly through Scripture, here's some of the things John the Baptist said about Jesus. He said, he is the Lamb of God, the one who will come and take away the sins of the world. That's what the people have been waiting for. John said that Jesus was the bridegroom, and this was an image used right through Old Testament Scripture, um, that Jesus was the bridegroom that Scripture had described and was waiting for. John said that Jesus is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. And John really clearly said, Jesus is the son of God. He couldn't have been more clear. And so Jesus is saying to these people, there's some testimony right there declaring who I am. But for some reason, they wouldn't believe that. So then in verse 36 of our passage today, we read this. He says, but I have even a greater witness than John, greater than John the Baptist. It's my teachings and my miracles these signs that John, the gospel writer, has been leading us to. And he says, The Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he has sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified about me himself. And so what we see as we look through this story, particularly in John's gospel, as we've reached chapter 5, John the Baptist didn't do any miracles. But when Jesus come on the scene, we start to see the blind having their sight opened, that the deaf could hear, that the lame could walk. And there was a great example of that at the start of chapter five. And this was the sort of evidence that that God was with Jesus, because this is the sort of thing that God can do. This is the sort of thing that represents the kingdom of God being here and present and available, because we're starting to see things Um, go from bad to good. We're starting to see the wrongs are righted in the way people uh, are even just living their lives. Now we read in chapter three, Nicodemus, that um, religious leader who came and spent some time with Jesus and had that conversation. He even declared to Jesus that the miracles you're doing would not even be possible if God was not with you. And so These miracles and these signs and these teachings and these things that Jesus is doing is a further testimony to who he is. 
Now, Jesus says, the Father gave me these works to do. And, and I just love the, the imagery and the connection that we probably don't get today like the original audience would have. Because back then, the whole way most of society worked was, you know, a father would apprentice a son and the son would learn to do what the father does. The son would take on the family business. The son would, would take over um, what the father does. And we even see this in, in Jesus being a, a carpenter or a tradesperson. And history would suggest that that's what Joseph, his earthly father, was. So he learnt the family business. And then Jesus uses this image beautifully when he calls people to follow me, to be my disciple. It really is this call to come and learn from me how to do the things I do. And Jesus is saying that's the very nature of the relationship between him and God the Father. He's only doing what he sees the Father doing. And that's a great thing. So, so far, there's three remarkable things that we've seen Jesus do, the three signs. Now, remember, John, the gospel writer, points out the first two as being signs. And then we've got to start counting for ourselves as we see the others. And they were the, the turning of the water into the wine, the healing of the official son, and then the healing of the paralyzed man. So these three signs, John had already implied that there were plenty of others as well. In chapter two, verse 23, he implies there's so many other signs that he's doing as well. And actually when John wraps up his gospel account, he says in chapter 20 and again in chapter 21, that there were so many things that Jesus did. So many signs and miracles and wonders and healings that even if they were all written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain them. Bit of hyperbole there, but, but it's basically saying there was lots and lots. And so those who were with Jesus would have been seeing this stuff, particularly his disciples. And then those who were hanging around, there was this evidence before them that could this be the Messiah? Could this be God incarnate, God in the flesh, God with us? And they had to make up their own minds. Here's this sense of the people actually being on trial, not Jesus. That as they're exposed to what's going on and what Jesus is saying and what he's pointing to, you have to make a decision. What do I do with this person of Jesus? Do I believe or do I refuse? And just like the audience who were there when this was being said, just like the audience who John wrote this gospel account for, just like all of us over the past 2000 years, we need to respond to that as well. What do we do with Jesus? And then he says this, he says to these people who knew the scriptures inside and out, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Now, there's a difference, about, difference between knowing about something and knowing something. There's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. I, I, had, an, I had an occasion a few years ago now where, um, yeah, as a sports fan, I, I've read and still continue to read lots and lots of biographies and autobiographies of sports people. I find them pretty interesting. And... Um, I had read a biography of a certain sports person. Um, I you know, followed their career to some degree. And a few years ago, I actually got to meet the person and spend a few hours with them. The person I thought they were, based on what was written about them in the book, was not the person I discovered in, in, in real life, in real interaction. It was actually really disappointing. 
Um, and so you think you can know someone, but until you really know someone, you don't know them. Yeah, there's that saying we have, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And really knowing something or someone is the key. And that's what Jesus is trying to bring people in. Do you really know me? In fact, he's pointing out, do you even really know the Father? Because what you're doing now is indicating that you don't. And so here's part of the problem. It seems that the Jews that Jesus was addressing in this passage, and it's true for us today as well, were looking in the scriptures for a secret to life or something they had to do or some sort of system to follow or an institution or a moral code or a set of behaviours and customs. They were looking for all that and they were performing all that when all the time they should have been looking for a person, the person of Jesus. See, knowledge and understanding and, and all that of scriptures is absolutely great if it leads you into deep relationship with Jesus. If all it does is fill your head with knowledge so you can think you're better than someone else when you sprout that knowledge, that's not the purpose of it. It actually can lead, if that's the way we treat it, it can actually lead to pride and and self-reliance and we actually miss the person that it's all about. So remember when Jesus spoke to the Jews in this situation, They had what we call the Old Testament. That was the scriptures. So it's easy for us to think, because we've got the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's easy for us to think the New Testament is all about Jesus. I mean, the first four books are the four Gospels, the, the, the Gospel of Jesus written by four people, all about the life of Jesus. Then we see Jesus through other letters in the New Testament, but Jesus himself is declaring The Old Testament is all about me. Think about that for a sec. His name, Jesus, is not mentioned, but the whole story is pointing to him. When you look through some of this, in the Old Testament, there are anywhere, depending depending who you read, but many scholars would say there are anywhere between 300, 350 prophecies about the Messiah, about Jesus, because he is the Messiah. Uh, just in the book of Isaiah, there could be at least 100, maybe 120 prophecies about the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled all of them. One person fulfilled all those prophecies in his life. Now, I'll just take a little aside for those who are mathematically minded. Um, Maybe look into this yourself. Check out a professor of science. His name is Peter Stoner. Um, And back in the 60s, he did some maths around the probability of a person fulfilling ancient prophecies. And so, as I said, there's maybe 300 or more prophecies He took just eight of them, eight specific prophecies, things like the town in which the Messiah would be born, how the Messiah would die, um, that the Messiah would be uh, betrayed by a friend, that he'd be laid in in a tomb or buried amongst rich people. All those things came true. He just took eight of them and worked out that the probability of those eight coming true in one person was equivalent to 10 to the power of 17. So I don't know how your maths is. Mine isn't great. So I had to work out what that is. I think that number is 100 quadrillion. Um, pretty big number. So to put that in perspective, 
Just imagine $1 coins, okay, $1 coins. And I've got 100 quadrillion $1 coins. And on one of them, I put a black X and then I mix them all up and you've got one chance to pick out the coin with the black X. One in 100 quadrillion chances. So what would that look like? Imagine the state of New South Wales, pretty big area, and those coins would cover the state of New South Wales up to your waist. That's how big this number is. And you've got one chance. And that's eight of the prophecies. When he worked out um, 48 of the prophecies coming true that absolutely Jesus fulfilled, that was 10 to the power of 157, which I can't even get my head around how big that is. So check that out. This, this is people prophesying about the Messiah, what he's going to do, what's going to happen, how it's going to look. Jesus fulfilled all of them. The Old Testament absolutely is all about Jesus. Big claim to make. So the way I was thinking of it, it's like, um, like a jigsaw puzzle. So the pieces are all there in the Old Testament, but the New Testament sort of gives us the, the picture we're trying to make on the cover of the box. They don't have that for the Old Testament. But when you know what the picture looks like and you can go back and search the scriptures, it's just so evident that it's just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus focused right through till he actually appears on the scene. Let's continue. So he goes on and talks about, um, you know, your approval means nothing to me in verse 41 in today's passage. Um, and I've come to you in my father's name, but you've rejected me. Um, you know, if others come in their own name, you're going to welcome them. Um, but you can't believe. And so Jesus was saying to the Jews, your reason for this is you actually don't love God. You go through the motions like you do. But here's this, here's this case of knowing about someone rather than knowing someone. And Jesus is saying to these Jewish leaders and these Jewish people who, who were confronting him, he's saying, you, you, you present as though you know God the Father, but I'm saying to you, you truly don't. And my proof to you is that you don't is because he has sent me and here I am doing the very things he's, he's doing in the world and you're missing it. You're rejecting me. You're, you're refusing to believe. Now, as a church, we, we have this model of a tree, this picture just to help us see how we, how we live out this discipleship life, this following of Jesus' life. And you've probably seen this picture before, it'll pop up now. And just in, in the fruit of the tree, the things that are evident in how we are relating to, to Jesus. See down the bottom, we're grounded in Jesus. But part of the fruit is that there's just this growing Evidence, this growing ability to love God and love others. And Jesus is pointing out in this situation that these Jewish leaders were missing that. They weren't truly loving God because if they were, they would have seen Jesus for who he is. So then we continue. Verse 45, it isn't I who will accuse you before the father, Jesus says, because you're pinning all your hopes on the law. You're pinning all your hopes on, on the first five books of your scripture, the Torah. You're pinning all your hopes on what Moses wrote and what Moses said. So he's basically saying, well, I'm going to let Moses accuse you for the position you've taken. So I want to read this in, in the message translation, starting in verse 45. Jesus says to them, but don't think I'm going to accuse you before my father. Moses, in whom you put so much stock, is your accuser. If you believed, really believed, 
what Moses said, you would believe me. He wrote of me. If you won't take seriously what he wrote, how can I expect you to take seriously what I speak? So the Jews had devoted themselves to Moses' teaching. And Jesus reminds them, Moses wrote about me. And here I am, here I am in the flesh before you. And you're missing it. So you really don't believe even Moses because your actions dictate what you say you believe. And here's a couple of the things Moses wrote. These are out of, um, out of those first five books in the Bible. And there's a lot more, but I just want to bring a couple before you. So here, here this first one, um, th- this is uh, Isaac, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is Jacob talking to his sons, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's talking to his son, Judah, because Jesus came from the tribe, from the line of Judah. And he's talking to Judah and he says to Judah, the scepter, which represents ruling, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honour. And then in Deuteronomy, Moses writes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. Remember back in chapter one, when John the Baptist was asked, you know, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? This is the prophet they were referring to. The one that Moses wrote about, the one that would come, the one that would lead the people out of bondage and slavery into freedom, just like Moses did. And they knew they were waiting for this prophet to arrive, for this deliverer to arrive. And Jesus is in front of them declaring, I am he, and they couldn't see it. So your prophet is one who speaks in the place of God, who conveys God's word to the people, who's an interpreter of God to men. I love that definition, an interpreter of God to men. Jesus, God in the flesh, was interpreting to the people what God is truly like. And in his teachings, he did that in his parables. Um, And as we read, you know, the parable of the prodigal son is just one of the best ones to really show what God the Father is truly like. Just this love and unconditional love, even when we get it wrong. So Jesus says to the Jews, I know you don't love God. You love having a good reputation and you love being in higher positions and you love interpreting the scriptures to serve your own needs and to control the others, but you don't love God. And this is why people are lost. Not because they don't get a chance and not because God hasn't chosen them and not because there isn't enough evidence, but because they're not willing to come to Jesus to have the life that he was offering. And this is what we see clearly in this passage of Scripture. And there, I think, lies our application from this passage. What will you do? What will I do? What will we do with the invitation of Jesus to come to him and experience the life that deep down we all desire, but we just cannot achieve on our own? What would it look like to come to Jesus and surrender our own will, our own ideas, our own way of living life and striving for things? 
What would it look like to surrender that and actually come to Jesus for the life that he offers? Remember, life is one of the key themes of John's gospel. That Jesus comes to bring life. So I want to finish today with a passage that John, John the gospel writer, also wrote in one of his letters. And it sums this up really beautifully. It's from 1 John chapter 5. You can read along with me. It says this, Jesus Christ was revealed as God's son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the spirit who is truth confirms it with his testimony. Since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about his son. All who believe in the son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have God's son does not have life. As we wrap up, remember that we've discussed earlier that eternal life is not eternal because it's going to be timeless and go on forever. It's eternal because it's sharing the very life of God himself, the very triune life, the life that Jesus comes to give us. That's why it is eternal, because God himself is eternal. And so eternal life is not this idea of I'm just going to be you know, floating on a cloud or whatever for, for eternity. It's about having true life with God, in God. That's what Jesus is offering us. And so we have a decision to make, just like the people in the audience that Jesus was addressing in this passage, just like the people who've read this passage in John's gospel for centuries. We have a position to say, what do we do with the person of Jesus? Do we step into the invitation that he's offering and do we accept the life that he's giving? Or do we, do we refuse it for whatever reason we can come up with? It's pretty confronting. But remember, John's writing all of this so that we would believe, so that we would have life, so that we could be carriers of that life into the world around us. That's something we all need to decide on. And that's something that can I encourage you to spend some time. If you haven't already made a decision in this, can you spend some time today? And if you're not sure if God's even real, there's a really simple prayer. Just say, God, if you are real, can you reveal yourself to me? And I fully believe that if you pray that prayer in sincerity, he will do that very thing. Let me pray for us. So, Father God, I thank you for your wisdom. I thank you for the way you sent your son. I thank you for the obedience of Jesus. I thank you for the life Jesus offers. I thank you for your spirit, which is the seal of that truth and the seal of that life in our lives. And I pray right now for those people listening who have chosen to believe and chosen to accept your invitation of life. I thank you for that reality and I pray that that life can flow out of us into the world and the people around us. 
And for those who are yet to say yes, God, I pray you would bring revelation that through your spirit, you would reveal yourself to them in a way where just as we're reading today, we can believe because of the testimony that is evident. And so would you help us do that, encourage one another in that, and we thank you for what you're doing in that space in your church. Amen.